Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist News Flash. Hello, welcome to the Naked Scientist News Flash, where we take a weekly look at what's hot in the world of science. This week's episode features Dave Ansell, Helen Scales, Chris Smith, and Sarah Castor Perry, and I'm Ben Valsler. Coming up, how a giant parachute could help to keep space tidy. This involves attaching a super light sail arrangement onto the rocket stage, which deploys once the rocket has released its satellite. This would increase the drag, it's called an aerobrake, and cause the rocket to come back to Earth in only a couple of decades, so reducing this build-up of space junk. What we could learn from ancient Egyptian herbal wine. They're now looking at refining their analysis to actually pinpoint the blend of herbs that were being used. And then they're going to put them to the test, these guys, McGovern and his team, are going to see if they maybe the Egyptians struck on a combination of plants that maybe would be useful to us today to treat 21st century diseases. And why people suffering with schizophrenia are unable to see certain optical illusions. What they found was striking because the people who were normal, 99% of them saw this illusion when they showed them with the virtual reality headset, the picture. None of the schizophrenics were fooled at all. They all said it looked like a hollowed out or sunken in face. So they were all seeing the inside of the mask. The brain scans, on the other hand, showed stark differences. And this could also shed light on the relationship between cannabis and schizophrenia. Plus, Sarah Castor-Perry looks back on this week in science history, celebrating the launch of the Hubble Space Telescope in 1990. That's all on the way. Now, something which has been brought to the forefront of everyone's attentions recently is collisions between satellites after an American Iridium mobile phone satellite crashed into a defunct Russian satellite. And uh, one major source of this space junk is spent upper rocket stages. Um, space rockets are generally multi-stage. You have one big stage which lifts up a smaller stage, which lifts up a smaller stage. And that top stage quite often can reach orbit. Now, these rocket stages are particularly dangerous to satellites as often they still contain a load of unburnt fuel. And if this vents, they can change direction so they can behave in an unpredictable manner. Or if you're really unlucky, if it doesn't vent, the pressure can build up and they can explode, producing a load more junk, which can cause even more chaos. Now, in low Earth orbit, there are faint wisps of an atmosphere that eventually slow down this debris and cause it to deorbit. This could take at least 100 years or even thousands, so these things are going to stay up there a long time. When you say low Earth orbit, Dave, how, how low is low? Where um, are these things? Sort of a couple of hundred kilometres up is sort of... Right. Uh, and lower is probably the major area where they are. They're not there's, there's still atmosphere out there? There's still... I mean, you wouldn't be able to breathe it. You probably wouldn't notice it in everyday life. But if you sit there in orbit for a long time, it will slowly take energy out, especially if the sun's very active. It heats up the outer atmosphere. Um, if you've got lots of solar wind, um, and you also get very exciting... Um, aurora borealis at this time. But this will cause the atmosphere to expand and... Um, this will slow down satellites very slowly. Now, Max Surf and Brice Santer, at, um, the firm EADS Astrium, may have a solution to this. This involves attaching a super light sail arrangement onto the rocket stage, which deploys once the rocket has released its satellite. This would be supported by some form of inflatable structure, probably impregnated with epoxy resin, so it would become solid even if all the gas... Um, leaks out and for an Ariane 5 upper rocket stage it would have to be about 350 square metres this would increase the drag it's called an aerobrake and cause the rocket to come back to Earth in only a couple of decades so reducing this build up of space junk so hopefully making the problem a lot less bad it's still decades though can we not have a really really big sail 
which would slow it down even faster? Or is that just totally impossible? I think it's about cost, really. The bigger the sale, the heavier it is, so the more energy and the more cost you need to put it up there. Still an intriguing idea to try and sort of slow down rockets in space using a parachute, even though there's not much atmosphere for them to slow down. Amazing. Helen? Well, from the very latest in the 21st century technology, I'm going to whiz us back thousands of years to a time to where... To Cambridge? No. <laughs> Auckland? No, I'm just joking. <laughs> To, to Egypt, a bit further away, um, to a time when swigging back um, something to help your headache go away with a glass of wine was actually something that we did. We don't do that these days, really. At least I certainly don't swig back an aspirin with a glass of wine or a bottle of beer. But that's what the ancient Egyptians were up to 5,000 years ago. It seemed to be that's what they were up to with what they were putting in their wine. Well, now a team of archaeologists have discovered traces of medicinal plants in the ancient wine jars buried in the tomb of one of ancient uh, Egyptians. Most uh, earliest pharaohs called Scorpion the First, which I think is wonderful. Reminds me of some kind of movie, I think, with the rock starring the rock, I think, doesn't it? The Scorpion King, anyway. Um, but this provides the first physical evidence that ancient Egyptians were prescribing themselves plants steeped in wine as herbal remedies. Well, the study was published in the journal PNAS by Patrick McGovern from the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia in the US. And his team basically went and analysed residues left behind in these ancient pottery wine jars that were excavated from a tomb in Abydos in Upper Egypt. And they found chemical signatures which showed that there was tartaric acid in those jars. And that's a really good indicator that there was once wine in those jars. And they also found various chemical traces from different active compounds found in plants. Now, we, we probably all know that plants contain all sorts of very active chemicals, partly because they can't run away when there's a predator or something trying to munch them. They've got their lovely leaves out there on display and they are really attractive to herbivores. So lots of them have evolved chemical defences to try and stop themselves from getting eaten. And those are actually the most ancient form of medicines. They're the kind of things that humans and other animals, interestingly, have figured out actually make yourself better, feel better if you've got various different conditions. And there are animals that will self-medicate with different types of plants, which is brilliant. But anyway, it seems that this is what the age ancient Egyptians were up to. And we, up until now, we only knew this because of papyrus um, uh, re records, drawings and um, hieroglyphics um, from around 1850 BC, um, showing that they might have used these medicinal tipples. So this is the first time they actually found evidence of that. And it pushes that date way back to about 5,000 years ago, which is brilliant. Um, but the only thing is... Um, we don't yet know exactly what the plants were because they haven't quite been able to identify the particular um, uh, chemicals to an actual plant. They know that there are the active chemicals that are found in various different plants. They're now looking at refining their analysis um, to actually pinpoint the blend of herbs that were being used. And then they're going to put them to the test, these guys, McGovern and his team, are going to see if they maybe the Egyptians struck on a combination of plants that maybe would be useful to us today to treat 21st century diseases. So who knows? But it's rather wonderful to imagine these guys knocking back a bit of a medicinal herbal tipple to make themselves feel better all that time ago. Thank you, Helen. If I ask you to, do, do you know what the hollow mask illusion is? And have you ever seen it? Is it, is it the one where if you turn it round, it looks like it's still looking at you? So it's hollow, but then it, it sort of comes out at you at the same time, something like that? That's right. That's the very illusion. If you take a look at a face, uh, say it's a mask that you would put over your face, and you look at it face on, of course it looks like a face. But imagine that on a turntable, turning round very, very slowly. As it turns round and you look into the back of it, you would expect to see just a hollowed out appearance of a face, wouldn't you? Like a face that you're looking through. 
but your brain plays a trick on you and what you actually see and it's impossible to suppress because I tried it for about half an hour this week in the office uh, you see the face coming out at you so in other words you're seeing this internal surface of this mask being reconfigured in your mind to become a face coming out at you instead of a face going inwards and the really interesting thing is that 99% of the population are fooled by this or you could say can see or experience this illusion but if you show it to someone who has schizophrenia they cannot experience this illusion they're not fooled by it and what they see is an in, is a face that's concave they see the inside surface of the mask and although people knew that they didn't know why so a group of researchers both at UCL and at Hanover Medical School this is Jonathan Royser and his uh, colleague Danai Dimmer who is based in Hanover they decided to find out by putting schizophrenics and normal people in brain scanners and showing them this illusion although they didn't tell them it was an illusion asking them what they saw and then comparing the brain scans and what they found was striking because the people who were normal 99% of them saw this illusion when they showed them with the virtual reality headset the picture none of the schizophrenics were fooled at all they all said it looked like a hollowed out or sunken in face so they're all seeing the inside of the mask the brain scans on the other hand showed stark differences in the normal people a part of the brain called the parietal cortex which is located in the upper back part of your head on both sides this became very very active as did the primary visual cortex the part of the brain that decodes directly what the eyes are seeing and what the team were able to do is to analyze the connectivity how much those two brain regions were talking to each other in the normal people there's a very big augmentation in the connections between these two areas when the people see this illusion in the schizophrenics there was no such connectivity and this goes along with our understanding of what's probably happening in schizophrenia which is that rather than it being as people view it this sort of split personality disorder probably schizophrenia is more that the brain processes things in a modular way there's a bit of the brain that does hearing there's a bit of the brain that does speech there's a bit of the brain that does seeing and normally what we do to create consciousness is to combine the puts all of these things together and experience them as a whole and in schizophrenia rather than connecting the products of those modules together they're viewed independently of each other so you can't unite things in this way and so people are saying we should view it more as a sort of disconnectivity state and what's really interesting is if people smoke cannabis they also cannot see this illusion so cannabis is also linked to schizophrenia so we think that this could be putting people into a sort of pro-psychotic state where it's stopping bits of the brain influencing each other and the reason you experience this in the first place is because you're basically relying on memory your brain is saying i should be seeing the inside of a mask but i've seen a face before i'm expecting to see a face so it creates a face for you to look at if you're if you're normal and is schizophrenia something that's difficult to diagnose and could it be that you could show someone this experiment and that would show that they were schizophrenic or was it a bit more difficult than that to say that's that direct link normally and, and as someone because i in, in my medical job have met quite a few people who have schizophrenia and usually um, the symptoms are quite florid and you can quite easily work out what's wrong with someone um, we wouldn't need subtle diagnostic measures like this but but what we do need is a way of understanding why this happens and therefore the best way to treat it or or therapies or better still ways to preempt it because what we haven't seen in this paper is do people who are destined to get schizophrenia also get fooled by this illusion or not and that might be useful because if you could scan those people and say ah these individuals could be at risk therefore we could identify them and give them therapy or give them treatment because what we know about this disease is that if you treat it earlier in the process people tend to not get as bad 
they get better quicker and they don't get as bad as they could have got. So in other words, they respond better than if you let them get very bad and then try and treat them. So I think probably that that is an area to look at. Excellent. That's good stuff. Well, I'm going to talk now about one of my favourite marine creatures, the octopuses, because they hit the science headlines this week with the news that contrary to popular belief, all species of these soft-bodied, eight-armed denizens of the deep are in fact venomous. And that solves one of the enduring maritime mysteries, which is how do octopus actually kill their prey? And the same actually goes for the octopus's cousins, the cuttlefish, and some squid as well. Well, the good news is that they are all harmless to people, and we'll be talking about snakes and whether they can bite themselves later on in the show. But except for the stunning, lethal, blue-ringed octopus, which is a tiny creature around 15 centimetres in size that lurks on tropical coral reefs. Those ones are deadly to human beings, but the rest of the octopuses are fine. Now, this is a study published in the Journal of Molecular Evolution, and Brian Fry from the University of Melbourne in Australia led a team of scientists on an octopus collecting expeditions, which I wish I had been on, would have been great fun, to the Great <laughs> Great Barrier Reef in Australia and to the waters of Hong Kong and to Antarctica. And as well as finding venom proteins in lots of different species of cephalopod, and that's the class of mollusks that includes octopus, cuttlefish and squid, the team also pinpointed the genes that code for these proteins. And they discovered that amongst all these various species, the same venom gene was inherited from a single common ancestor a long, long time ago. And it turns out that octopus venom is very similar to the proteins in other animals like snakes, um, which just goes to show that they've actually independently evolved a similar solution to how to create a molecule that's toxic so you can kill your prey or get rid of something that's trying to attack you. Um, so this new octopus discovery really sheds light on how, how evolution, if you like, came up with that solution of how to make a molecule that's venomous. And it should pave the way as well towards developing new drugs for us humans to have a go at treating our own pain. Strangely enough, um, toxins like this actually can help treat pain um, and uh, allergies and cancers and various things like that. So it also means we know now how octopus kill their prey. They can grab a tough-shelled crab with their suckered tentacles, pierce its shell and put it sharp with its sharp beak and then inject venom to kill those creatures. But it leaves us with the eternal conundrum. And maybe you guys can help us out here. What is the plural of octopus? I think it's octopodes because I asked a friend who is a Greek scholar and he told me that was the correct way. Is that how you pronounce it? I, I thought it was octopodes. Oct- no, I octopodes, octopodes because Greek okay. the ES is ease, isn't yes, it? Yes, I thought octopodes sound fun. All right, octo- we'll go with octopodes. octopi, don't they? But it's octopi, wrong. Like octopuses. cactus, cacti, it's wrong. Mm. I think because it's Greek, it's octopodes, I believe. There you go. Am I right? Solved. I don't know. I, I had a look around and I think it's, it seems fairly unclear. I think it's either octopuses or octopodes. And I like octopodes. <laughs> Thank you, Helen. Now, also this week, it is the 66th anniversary. And in fact, today is the, that very day, 66 years ago, that the famous Bicycle Day occurred. And Bicycle Day was when Dr. Albert Hoffman, who was a researcher in Basel, was working on something which has subsequently spawned an entire revolution, the psychedelic revolution, because he took a famous trip home on his bicycle from work after inventing what subsequently became known as LSD, lysergic acid diethylamide. And he was doing it by studying a fungus that grows on wheat. And his discovery was entirely accidental. And to tell us a little bit about it is Professor Philip Strange, who's the Director of Pharmacology at the University of Reading. Hello, Philip. Hi there. So tell us a bit about this uh, momentous anniversary that we're celebrating today and in effect this week. Um, Well, Hoffman, as you you said, was an organic chemist working in Sandoz in Basel in the 1940s. And he was working on these chemicals derived from the fungus ergot. Uh, And one of the chemicals he made based on the ergot was uh, LSD. 
And on April the 16th, 1943, he uh, was working on LSD and he experienced some funny effects, including hallucinations after working with a chemical. Um, and he went home for the weekend. Uh, and on the 19th of April, that's uh, 66 years ago today, he came to work keen to verify these odd effects of the drug. And so he took a quarter of a, quarter of a milligram of the pure drug and experienced the same psychedelic effects again, only much more strongly, because this is actually a very large dose to take, as we now know. Um, he felt very odd that day. He experienced these psychedelic effects, and he decided to go home. And as this was wartime, there were no cars, so he used his bike. And the crazy bicycle ride home through the streets of Basel under the influence of the LSD was the first demonstration of the powerful psychedelic effects of the drug. And so it's termed Bicycle Day in the psychedelic counterculture. Although it obviously didn't harm him too much because he actually died last year at the age of 102. Um, but what was he actually trying to achieve? Obviously not to make hallucinogens. He was working on these agents for some reason, presumably not with that reason in mind, though. Well, the LSD, I think, was just an accident, really, in some respects. You know, he was, the, 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 the Sandals were interested in... They were, they were in the business of making new drugs. And so, and so they wanted to look at different sources, and they chose a natural product, this ergot, which grows, as you said, on wheat, but also on rye as well. And it contains all sorts of interesting chemicals. And so, for example, preparations of ergot have been used for years to quicken labor. And, and the, 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 the Sandoz isolated the active compound ergometrine from that, and it's still used um, to stop hemorrhaging after childbirth. Because it uh, constricts arteries, doesn't yeah, it? The, doesn't, right, the same, yeah. doesn't the same drug also prove useful in the treatment of migraines by preventing the blood vessels in the brain from that's dilating that's painfully? That's ergotamine. Which that's is a, similar, isn't it? It's similar, but it's, it's, it's a different compound. It's ergotamine. Yes, that's right. No, that's it. um, and it works very similarly to the triptans, which are now have really t- taken over in treatment of migraine. Do we know how LSD actually does what it does, though? Um, we don't know clearly, but I mean, but what uh, what LSD does is it uh, it hijacks some of the, the the receptors in the brain for chem- one of the chemicals called serotonin. Serotonin is a neurotransmitter, a brain chemical, which is very important for transmitting messages in our brains, and it's involved it's involved in all sorts of different things like emotion, uh, as well as also constricting arteries, as you've said, and uh, it acts by binding to proteins called receptors. And LSD basically binds to those receptors and hijacks the effect. So it's not, it's not surprising to have these very complex effects. Why is it that some people experience bad outcomes from doing this, though? Because, of, of course, even Hoffman himself said that uh, you can sometimes get bad trips, where rather, rather than seeing nice things, you see nasty things. I don't know the answer to that question, really. I think, I think one thing is that people take too much. Because I think it, you know, it was espoused by the hippie culture, and I think they, it was used in a very uncontrolled manner there, I think. I think it's one reason. I mean, another reason is I think people are all different you know, in the way they react to these things, in you know, different uh, drugs and so on. And I think also perhaps the preparations of the drug people are being given are not pure. But at the same time, and just to finish off, I think this does tell us quite a bit about how we go about finding drugs, because Helen was saying that if you look at, say, the octopus, there may be genes which it uses to make toxins, and those toxins that kill things could also prove therapeutically useful. I think that the science that Sandoz were doing that accidentally led to the generation of LSD in itself was a very sound way to discover drugs, wasn't it? Oh, it is, and I think it's still used by some companies nowadays. There are still, you know, particularly the deep sea organisms, I think, are felt to contain new structures which, on which you can then base new drugs.
Thank you very much, Philip. We'll have to leave it there. That was Professor Philip Strange. He's from Reading University telling us about Bicycle Day. It was 66 years ago today that Albert Hoffman, a chemist, discovered the chemical that became known as LSD. And in fact, Philip has written an article which is on the Naked Scientist website which describes that story in more detail. If you want to go and find it, you go to nakedscientist.com forward slash articles. Read the references and find out the facts. All our programmes are archived in text and audio on our website at nakedscientists.com. Now let's join Sarah Castor-Perry for a stroll down scientific memory lane and a view into deep space. This week in science history saw in 1990 the launch of the Hubble Space Telescope, the largest and most advanced extraterrestrial telescope that has allowed us an extraordinary insight into the furthest reaches of the universe and has also helped to determine the speed at which the universe is expanding. This year we're celebrating the 400th anniversary of Galileo Galilei's groundbreaking observations using one of the very first telescopes – The Hubble telescope is, unsurprisingly, pretty different to Galileo's, which would have used glass lenses. In order to see dimmer objects, the objective lens, which is the main light-capturing lens, needs to be bigger. The only problem with this is that as the glass lenses get bigger in diameter, because they can only be held around the edges in order for the light to pass through them, they tend to sag in the middle, distorting the image. The solution to this has been to use mirrors, which could be supported from behind to capture the images, a system first developed by Newton in the 17th century. Hubble's primary mirror is over two metres in diameter. The telescope was funded as a collaboration between NASA and the European Space Agency and was originally planned to be launched in 1983. However, several problems, including the Challenger disaster in January 1986, where a NASA shuttle broke up on takeoff, delayed the launch. It was eventually launched on the shuttle Discovery in April 1990. But even once it was up in orbit, it was beset with problems. Scientists realised that the primary mirror used to capture the images had not been ground properly, and so in 1993, a servicing mission was sent to rectify it by installing corrective optics. In 1994, NASA announced that the mission had been a success and released newly taken images showing much higher resolution. The telescope has been part of some of the most important astronomical work of the 20th century, including being used to calculate the Hubble constant, named just like the telescope after the American astronomer Edwin Hubble. He proposed what came to be known as Hubble's Law, which suggested that the universe was expanding and is some of the main support for the Big Bang. The measurements taken by the Hubble telescope allow scientists to estimate the rate of expansion much more accurately. The data collected by the telescope also supported the theory that most galaxies, including our own galaxy, the Milky Way, have a black hole at their centre, an idea first suggested in the 1960s. It hasn't proven the theory, but the sort of radiation being emitted from these areas of space is consistent with the presence of what we currently understand as a black hole. One of the most exciting pieces of information gathered by the Hubble telescope is the collection of ultra-deep field images – These may not look like much at first, a picture showing lots of slightly different shaped coloured points of light, but these are some of the furthest away galaxies in the universe that emit visible light. They are approximately 13 billion light years away, meaning that the light that is now reaching us from them was emitted 13 billion years ago, only a few hundred million years after the Big Bang. The ultra-deep field images give us a glimpse of what the young universe was like. As well as these, the images taken by the telescope of galaxies like our closest neighbour Andromeda and of nebulae like the Eagle Nebula 
were like nothing else the public had ever seen before and really gave people the chance to see a new side to the universe. As for the future of the telescope, another servicing mission is planned for May 2009 and after this the telescope could continue to operate up to 2021. In 2013, the James Webb Space Telescope is due to be launched. This will be a much more advanced telescope, but will only observe in the infrared end of the spectrum, which means it will not replace Hubble, which observes in the visible and ultraviolet, but work alongside it to further astronomical research. The Hubble Space Telescope is probably the best-known telescope of its kind around the world, and as well as providing invaluable to the world of astronomy, it has provided beautiful and extraordinary images of our universe that inspire and enthrall the public. That was Sarah Castor-Perry explaining how the Hubble Space Telescope, which has pushed back the boundaries of our astronomical knowledge, was launched this week in science history. That's all we have for the Naked Scientist Newsflash, which this week featured Chris Smith, Helen Scales, Dave Ansell and Sarah Castor-Perry, along with our guest, Professor Philip Strange. The Naked Scientist Newsflash is produced by me, Ben Valsler. If you'd enjoyed this newsflash, then why not check out the Naked Scientist podcast, where every week we bring you the latest in science news, along with interviews with top scientists, answers to your questions, and a kitchen science experiment for you to try out at home. Please join us on the web at thenakedscientist.com, and we'll be back with another roundup next week. The Naked Scientist Newsflash, reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.